Welcome to Black Music Matters, a podcast that sheds light on the enormous contributions black musicians, singers, and songwriters have made to the music the world knows as American-made music. Few people seem to know that the month of June is African American Music Appreciation Month. Even though it was first declared so by President Jimmy Carter in 1979. But Carter called it Black Music Month. Then President Barack Obama changed the name to African American Music Appreciation Month, which better indicates that the month is not for honoring all African music, just music made in America that was influenced by the African music techniques brought to this country. Techniques that made the music so innovative and appealing that they helped shape all music known around the world as American music. Unfortunately, racism harmed some of the most influential black singers, musicians, and songwriters. And that racism harmed them financially and also harmed many by leaving their legacies relatively unknown. So here are just some of the segregated practices the recording industry thought were necessary. From about 1920 to 1949, Records made by black artists were classified as race music. Then the music industry changed the name to rhythm and blues. A different name, but the same meaning. The music would be marketed to a black audience and not sold in most record stores. Nor would it be played on major radio stations. Instead, black music was played on small stations that had weak signals. And usually it was played late at night because that's when those weak radio signals became stronger. The major radio stations almost entirely played records by white recording artists. A few black artists could get on the major radio stations, though. That is, if they sounded white enough, like Nat King Cole. In the 1940s, he crossed over into the white pop market. From 1947, To 1955, he was the only black artist to have a record listed in Cashbox Magazine's annual survey of the year's 10 most played records. Cole had his own radio show for a short while in the 1940s, and then in 1956, he became the first black singer to host his own television show on a national network. The show became quite popular, for Cole had top celebrities on his show, both black and white. There were other similar shows around that time which had white singers as hosts. Those shows had national sponsors, though, and Cole could not get one. A show hosted by a black man was quite controversial at that time, especially in the nation's most segregated areas. Without enough financial support, his show was canceled after just 13 months. Segregation, strong and so strange. Many major record companies segregated the music they recorded by forming subsidiary labels for their black music. RCA Victor had the Bluebird label, and Columbia Records had OK Records for their black singers. But white singer Johnny Ray's record, called Cry, landed on the OK label, for after it was recorded... Company executives thought the song was too emotional for Columbia's main label. Too emotional. I guess that meant too black. 
Anyway, for two months, Cry was a number one hit on the pop charts. It was also a number one rhythm and blues hit, a sign that a change was going to come. And helping that change along were the many small independent record labels founded by entrepreneurs who recognized the great marketability of rhythm and blues. Most of those small labels didn't last very long, but some thrived, like Atlantic Records, formed in 1947. In the early 1950s, rhythm and blues singer Ruth Brown started turning out a string of hits for Atlantic. So many hits that the label became known as the house that Ruth built. The practice of one record label recording a song after the original had become a hit on another label Well, that had been going on since the beginning of the record business. But the cover records of the mid-50s were meant to capitalize on the racism of the time. When a record company that didn't record black artists saw a record by a black artist quickly climbing the rhythm blues charts, they would get a white artist to record the same song, which could then get played on major radio stations. Those cover records were released sometimes just months or even a few weeks after the original record came out. In nearly all cases, the sales of the white cover records surpassed the original rhythm and blues versions, even though the covers were mostly poor, bland copies. Some disc jockeys wouldn't play the white cover records. One of these disc jockeys was Alan Freed, who is credited with changing the name of the rhythm and blues music he was playing to calling it rock and roll. Though in the black community, rock and roll sometimes meant dancing, it was also used as a euphemism for having sex. I often wonder whether Freed was aware of that. Whatever, the name change helped hide from some that it was black music they were listening to. Music based on the blues with a heavy backbeat recorded by black artists. Freed first played rhythm and blues records on a small station in Cleveland. He became so popular that a major radio station brought him to New York in 1954. And though he wasn't the only white disc jockey playing rhythm and blues, Freed was a master of promotion, hosting sold-out dances and concerts. Soon his radio show became syndicated, heard in all major cities in the U.S., In July 1957, one month before Dick Clark's show aired on national television, Freed's own national televised show went on the air. It was called The Big Beat. Though the show received strong ratings, it was quickly canceled after a black teenage singer, Frankie Lyman, was seen on camera dancing with a white teenage girl. All of the segregated practices I mentioned so far damaged the careers of black singers, musicians, and songwriters. Repairing the monetary damage done to black artists would be impossible, but repairing the legacies of those artists, that can be done. The month of June is also when the Songwriters Hall of Fame hosts a gala event in which it inducts its newest members. Its first event was held in 1970, and there were 120 inductees. Only three were women, and only one of those was truly a songwriter. Each of the other two women has credits for lyrics of a single song 
only. How sad when there were so many other females back then who had such impressive catalogs, like Rosemary McCoy, who was the subject of a previous podcast. But what about the male inductees? Out of the 167, there were only seven black male songwriters inducted. Sadly missing was Charlie Singleton, who had written more than 500 songs by then, many recorded by rhythm and blues artists, but he also had written a whole bunch of top hits for such popular artists as Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, Pat Boone, Al Martino, and many, many more top white artists. So successful was he that two of his songs were included in BMI's list of 100 top songs of the 20th century. Yet Charlie Singleton, who wrote both lyrics and music for many of his songs, still has not been inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Was it because he was black? That's what I thought at first. But now I think it may be all about the money. After all, a table at the Songwriters Hall of Fame's annual gala can cost up to $50,000. Who can afford that? Hmm. Well, big recording artists can, and so can their record companies and their music publishers. What can they get in return for such a huge investment? Ah, lots of publicity, increased record sales. So Rose and Charlie, who were not top recording artists, may never be honored. If only the Songwriters Hall of Fame would rename their organization. I thought the SWSWS Hall of Fame would be a catchy name. That stands for Singers Who Sometimes Write Songs Hall of Fame. More descriptive when you check out who usually gets inducted. 